0: Hey guys, it's Lori here just letting you know that this episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Learn more at csbible.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 64, take two, exploring our souls of shame.
0: Yes, welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone. Every day. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I do have alongside me my favorite licensed therapist and Argyle expert, my husband, Matt Krieg. Hi. I tried to just like do that in one breath. Did you? (laughs) Is anybody impressed? No? Okay. Uh, We do have with us the ever-faithful and most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve...
1: Hi, guys.
0: (laughs) Whenever the three of us are the only ones in the room, things just (laughs) get get silly. We get silly. (laughs) Oh, man. But a reason we are just the three of us in the room is because we are continuing our series called Take Two where we're hitting up some of our favorite episodes from the last four seasons before we launch season five this fall. Good grief. So excited. Matt, who are we talking about today? Yeah,
2: today we're going to be talking with Kurt Thompson. This episode, we're talking about shame, our souls of shame. But we have a lot of questions about...
0: What are souls of shame? <laughs> yeah. What
2: Well, hey, well, what is shame in general? How yeah. can we prevent it? How can we become more resilient as people? And why does shame seem to just cycle back in on itself?
0: Do you see shame at all, Matt, when you talk with clients?
2: Mm, yeah.
0: <laughs> Is it probably. everyone? Oh, Do you feel goodness. like that's an issue yeah. with every single I, person?
2: I, I, I mean, I feel like almost universally, unless like you're dealing with like a narcissist type of personality, wow. that's probably the only time you don't see any hints of shame. But wow. most often, yes, they're shame.
0: Well, we chose the episode because kind of what Matt said. We all have to deal with uh, the shame piece of our lives. And Kurt is just the best. <laughs> we love him so much. And I hope after listening to this episode, maybe grabbing his book, you'll um, you'll feel the same way.
1: Yeah. If you are not familiar, Kurt Thompson uh, is an MD, uh, Wright State University. He's board certified psychiatrist. He's the founder of the Center for Being Known, a nonprofit organization It develops resources to educate and train leaders on the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. What Mm. an intersection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He is the author of The Soul of Shame. And he, with his wife Phyllis, who, by the way, is also a licensed clinical social worker, are the parents of two kids. They reside in Arlington, Virginia.
0: All right, guys, just a reminder before we dive in here that we're just cutting out the front and the back of each of these original episodes and inserting what you just heard. And we'll circle back at the end with some more next steps and and launch you into next week. But here we go. Here's episode 64, take two, exploring our souls of shame. Before we really do a hard look and deep dive, um, we ask every guest who comes here this double series of questions, but when was the gospel first good news? If the gospel is, I'm more sinful than I believe and more loved than I can imagine, to paraphrase Tim Keller's definition, um, when was that gospel first good news for you? I know you alluded to age 13, but then two, because we don't all have just a past tense testimony, we still need that gospel daily. How is it still good news for you?
3: Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's really um, it's interesting. You know, I'm I'm familiar with, with Tim with Tim's uh, quote, mm-hmm. and I remember the first time I heard that. And um, and I I I, <laughs> I respect Tim Keller uh, as much as I respect anybody on the planet. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, had the occasion one one time to share the stage with him, and um, but it's it it's striking to me that we even think in terms of the gospel. Uh, and order our language in the way that we do, hmm. where we start by saying, I'm more sinful than I believe and more hmm. loved than I can imagine. And um, I haven't had a chance to talk with Tim about this, but I would say that uh, even that phrase is one that I would invite us to turn around.
4: Hmm.
3: Um, that the gospel, if it is good news, does not begin with, I'm more sinful than I believe. Yep. Hmm. It begins with, In fact, we are more loved than we can imagine.
4: Mm.
3: And it is in that space of being loved incessantly, relentlessly, that we become aware of just how sinful we are. I actually don't need God to tell me that I'm sinful. Like, I get it. Mm. Shame would like me to pay a lot of attention to that Mm -hmm. to the degree that even as i'm trying to incorporate desperately this second half of the phrase that i'm loved more than i can imagine shame is still kind of uh, in charge of the conversation
4: hmm.
3: which is why um, it's so difficult for us to kind of untangle from it because it it does have a leading edge even to the point where in a situation like this where we want to name the gospel as good news, but even in our languages, it turns out that's not actually what we lead with. Hmm. Hmm. And so I I, I said, like, I, Jesus found me in a powerful way when I was 13 at a church camp. And, uh, and it's only even, even now as in, in my sixth decade, and, you know, you, you continue to recognize that Jesus is continually saving you from more and more and more stuff at younger and younger times of your life that you didn't know you didn't know about. Hmm. And so, uh, again, the whole notion of the family in which I grew up, um, you know, it, uh, it, it sets a stage for me to be saved at 13 from things that I am not even aware of that I'm being saved from, including a narrative that, you know, for a whole range of reasons, a narrative that I uh, had incorporated into my own life that really worried that I was not okay. Mm. Uh, that that would those those would be the words that I would use. Now, yeah. the, the the fundamental essence of it is actually pre-verbal. It's beyond language. It's uh, it's it's not something that language by itself can actually do much to overcome. Which is why it is that when we just say to people, "Well, you don't need to be ashamed of that," it's not very effective. Right. Um, you know, so I, I would say, you know, I was met powerfully at age 13. But it's, it's like I tell people, look, um, you know, there are historians who looked at the landing at D-Day in Normandy and said that the Germans knew that if the Allies took the beaches, the war was effectively over. Hmm. But the problem is, is that functionally it wasn't. Right. And in the same way that Good Friday and Easter Is like a landing on Normandy.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, evil has no intention of going quietly into the night mm-hmm. mm. and uh, will continue to use shame as its primary henchman yeah. in, uh, you know, preventing, you know, preventing the victory from being won. And even even though, you know, it knows its days are numbered. Yes. So that's a that is a long winded answer to your question. I oh, just realized
0: No wind. There is zero wind, only like beautiful content where we're all yeah. like tearing up with you and it's mm. just it's beautiful i'm like taking notes so feel like just okay what do i say how could i like just articulate this again in such a beautiful way i'm just gonna have to quote you um but then too i'm writing down let's adjust our definition of the gospel also if you have tim keller's email address get that from you so i have some notes i've got some notes um no but that's just it's so beautiful
3: well, it's it's uh, it's it's beautiful, it's humbling, it's terrifying, right? Because we're yeah. invited then to live into this life and and leave shame behind, and it's really hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: so let's dive into shame by just asking what is, and you say in your book, there's a working definition of shame. So where are you at in said working definition of shame? What is one?
3: Yeah, I, I think um you know, I was uh, thinking about this earlier today about how the Bible, for instance, uh, is the, the authors of the Bible are uh, in, in the stories that they tell, where I'm not speaking so much about the instructional literature of like the epistles, but the story literature of the Bible, uh, you know, the writers are so good at doing what we say good movie producers do, which is that they show they don't tell. Yeah. And um, I think about this notion that the Bible does not give us a... Like an absolute, for instance, definition of sin or of shame or of guilt, and it's it's not like a Webster's go to for these things. It simply gives us, it gives us stories, and it gives us, uh, you know, revelation about like how this affects us, how this is lived out, how this is. Uh, embodied in the human condition in the course of our lives as God is pursuing us. And I think the same thing, you know, exists with shame. I mean, we have in, in some respects, we, we, you know, all of our listeners, like, I don't need to give us a definition. Like we all get it. We know what it is when we sense it, when we feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, to to be more explicit, we would say that there are some work you know there's a working understanding neurobiologically about what happens, mm. and we can talk a little bit about that. We could, we could say, for instance, that shame really is the sensed neurophysiologic awareness of what happens when our sympathetic drive system, which is our what I call our go mode, right when we are actively engaged in anything that we are interested in pursuing. Mm -hmm. And that pursuit could be just the offering of a casual comment, uh, you know, at a dinner party. Or that thing could be the putting forth of an idea in a boardroom. Or that could Mm -hmm. be asking someone to marry us. That could be an infant who's going for the begonias. (laughs) We're in this go mode, which Dan Siegel and Alan Shore like to talk about as the accelerator of the brain, right? We are moving forward towards something and it doesn't have to be aggressively so, but we have this accelerator that's part of a, the automobile metaphor. And at the same time, life also requires a way for us to break the engine, for us to slow the engine. Uh, we don't want the child to actually run into the street. Mm. We don't want to be in go mode to the degree that we... Go So hard and so fast that we come into literally oncoming traffic, whether really or metaphorically,
4: hmm.
3: we need a way to slow the engine. We need our parasympathetic system to be engaged. But an 18 month old is not going to do that on their own. They need the parasympathetic system in their brain to be activated by the parent. And the parent will say, no, no. Hmm. In some way, shape, or form, we'll say no to the child. I don't want you to eat the begonias because I don't want you to die. So we're going to move the child. We may say, no, you may not have that. But we're going to move the child from the begonias to something else. Or we may say no to our teenager. Or we may say no to our employee. It's important that we have a way for us to restrain our sympathetic system by engaging our parasympathetic system. And that's the breaking system of our brain. And this is necessary for us. We like to say, "Look, no," is as an important element of God's love for us as is His yes.
4: Hmm.
3: There's no question that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, I, I tell people it would, be, it would be lovely. Look, if God doesn't want me to eat of that tree, then why don't you plant it forty miles to the west? Look, we right. don't even have the wheel yet, right? Right, right. I don't. I and and so that I can't get to it. But He puts His no in the very center Hmm. of our relational and emotional life together in the Garden of Eden, and says, you may not do this. We need no in order for us to flourish as much as we need yes. Hmm. But in order for that to be done effectively, in order for no to be activated effectively, this braking system, we also need, in the metaphor of a standard transmission automobile, we need a clutch, we need something that can help the engine adjust from the accelerator mode to the braking mode. And that clutch is the presence of an attuned relationship. Mm. So when the infant is being told no, when the, when, when the, when the toddler is being told no by the parent, the no can be done gently or the no can be done with a loud voice. Because if, I mean, there are sometimes if our child literally is about to do something dangerous, we shout across the room. No, Hmm. strongly, but we know that if you drive a standard transmission automobile, you can slam on the brake, but if you follow quickly enough with the clutch, you don't lose the engine. Mm -hmm. You can say no to a child, but if you are quickly moving toward them in an attuned fashion, Hmm. you help their parasympathetic system not overwhelm their brain. And so they learn to not do certain things. We learn to say no. We learn to self-regulate and restrain. But we do so effectively because it is in the restraint that we still maintain deep connection with another human being who is attuned to us. Hmm. Hmm. Anytime the brake system is applied and no clutch is available, shame is what happens. Hmm. And so... Again, things as simple and as casual as we're speaking in a group and we offer a comment and nobody responds. We just kind of just keep going. And nobody comes back and says, Laurie, wait, you said something earlier and we didn't get to you. Could you say that again?
4: Hmm.
3: That sense of feeling, ignored. look, that's not, you know, it's, it's not catastrophic. It's not major. But the brain registers this as a neurophysiologic event, the fundamental nature of which is what we call shame. And that fundamental nature is the same thing that happens when someone is publicly humiliated. Right. It's the same thing, but we tell people that you know. So so this this is the neurophysiology of shame, and it's not hard for us to see and feel and imagine this in significant catastrophic events, uh, bullying, um, sexual and physical abuse some kind of public humiliation. The thing is, is that as far as our life is concerned, the vast majority of how these events actually occur uh, is in the privacy of our own minds dozens of times every day when we say to ourselves, I should have done this, I should have done that, I'm not good enough at this, I'm not good enough at that. And, I mean, we all get it. We all have our, as I write about in the book, we all have our private shame attendants whose job it is to walk around and point out to us the myriad, small details of life in which you just haven't done something well enough. Mm. And it's like these little micro moments of that, that turn into a death of a thousand cuts.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. i am so, learned so, already so many things. Yeah. Okay, so, go ahead, so,
2: like, I mean, I really like the the car analogy that you use, um, you know, be, because it's, it's very, like, tangible, very like kind of straightforward. Mm-hmm. And I know shame is a lot more convoluted than that. Um, you know, but just this idea that if we, I mean, no matter what our intent is, when we're applying the break, you know, as, and I'm thinking as a parent to to a child, you know, given that I have a, a four and a two-year-old, it's, it's something I have to say no
3: at mm-hmm. certain mm-hmm.
2: points throughout the day. You know, don't lick your sister's face whatever <laughs> and the floor <laughs> or the floor or, you know whatever
3: sorry that's really funny <laughs> well, that's there, there are certain
2: sentences that i'm just like i never expected to have to say this don't pick
3: up the poop <laughs> yeah
2: but there it is you know but but having that that ability to to then move into the relationship into the the continuance of the relationship where where this no is not all of a sudden shutting their engine down and and I think that you beautifully described that in your book when you talked about you know the whole uh, story of what happened in Eden when after the fruit was eaten and and God's response to to Adam and Eve wasn't oh what do you do like it, it, it was it was a hey where are you like a, a pursuit of a moving into the relationship when Adam and Eve all they wanted to do was move away from it all they wanted to do was was retreat Right, and, right, and, yeah. So, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, indeed. And I think that um, part of our part of our difficulty is uh, we now live in a culture also where um, the notion of restraint, the notion of being said no, being told no, is difficult for us to hear because our imaginations have been. It, it, we only have experiences of being, or, or we have limited experiences, such that our no is really confined to ones in which relationship is not connected to it. And mm-hmm. so uh, we find, you know, if, if someone tells us no, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a far more painful thing than it needs to be. And we have a hard time recognizing no uh, being as important to our mm-hmm. growth as the word yes.
0: Yeah, Are you talking about because we're so disconnected, because we're more online? In, and so when we say these sorts of no's, it's, it, it's abrupt whether or not it means to be abrupt?
3: well I think uh, at least my, my my sense of things um, uh, I forget the author's name the, the the woman who wrote the book the blessing of a skin knee mm-hmm. this this notion that when we have some kind I mean it, 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 when, when we when children um, first hear us say no um, it's important to know that even in our um being relationally connected to them. If I say, no, you may not have the begonias. uh, They don't just because I'm Mm -hmm. connected doesn't suddenly mean like, oh my gosh, dad, thank you so much for taking (laughs) me away from those beautiful flowers. I'm sure you have a much better idea for me. I'm so grateful. Like, no, that's not what there is a certain distress Mm -hmm. that comes when we put the brake on the system. Mm -hmm. This is not something that we enjoy. I don't really like this. I mean, she looked at the fruit of the tree, and she saw that it was good for things, right? When we look at this thing at which I'm tempted, it's not like I'm tempted to things that I don't like. Hmm. We have to say no to things that we really enjoy. And so there is a certain sh- there there is a certain distress that emerges mm-hmm. when no is applied. But it is the relationship that mitigates that. It is the relationship that enables us to learn how to cope with the distress of no. And in so doing, we actually build resilience. We learn how to tolerate distress. Mm. But we don't learn it just because I can white knuckle it and I can learn yes. how to take distress. I learn to, re- I, I learn to respond to distress through the context of co-regulation with a relationship that is with me in that process. So to your point, Laurie, that in our disconnection and, you know, um, social media, not the least, is going to be a way in which we are becoming neurobiologically more and more disconnected from each other. Um, There's no question about that. Uh, In that state of disconnection, it becomes more difficult for us to tolerate no, Mm no, Because I don't have the relational co-regulator available to me to help me know how to handle that. Mm Yeah. And so it gives shame. It gives shame a much greater, um, a, a much wider pathway to enter into and between relationships and literally to do its work even kind of neurobiologically within us.
0: Which makes sense why all of us feel so much often more terrible after getting online than like, oh, but I got all these likes, but you think of all the likes you did not get or like it wasn't enough comments. It's never enough to satiate. But on, what, on your point, even just as you were starting to land the plane there with talking about social media, when you were just saying about how having these emotional regulators because of relationship, it empowers us to say no. And I'm like, that makes so much sense. Whenever I share my story or Matt, I think of yours or Steve, your story, mm-hmm. uh, we are empowered to say no to the things we desire most. Because of relationship Both with God mm-hmm. primarily mm-hmm. But then those who model him so well So that's it's okay. just fleshing out Even my own story more as you're mm-hmm. speaking
1: mm-hmm.
0: Hey Matt, Steve uh-huh. Yes you want to hear something cool?
1: Sure, what is it?
0: So, we were in our real life small group the other week And Matt volunteered to read something from the Bible
1: Okay Yeah, I read it And do you know what
2: happened? What? I got asked the question What translation is that? Our friends loved it
1: Which one was it, Matt? (laughs) The CSB, (laughs) Christian Standard Bible. No kidding. The one that's been sponsoring the podcast, so you guys actually read it in real life.
0: Yeah, we really like how it reads. We're so familiar with things like the NIV and the ESV and NLT, which we love, but the Bible can sadly become kind of like white noise to us.
4: Yeah.
2: I've really appreciated how the CSB is both familiar, but also
1: fresh and new. Yeah. That is really cool, guys.
0: It is. So if you guys listening want to shake up your usual reading routine with a high scholarship translation that is familiar yet new, hit up csbible.com to see all of what the Christian standard Bible has to offer. Can you talk a little bit about the loop as you called it in your book? Just what is the loop and, and why is that important to this whole shame conversation?
3: Well, one of the things that we know that uh, the the neurophysiology of shame tends to do is it it tends to be self-reinforcing. So I I feel ashamed about something that I do. And the moment I even pause to consider that I am ashamed, my reflecting on it only strengthens the very neural network activity of the shame that I feel. I feel ashamed, and then I feel ashamed of feeling ashamed. Yeah, <laughs> and the notion that I would tell you about it yeah. only confirms that I couldn't tell you about it because thinking about telling you about it makes me feel even more ashamed. Yeah, right. And so it does become this um, snowball
4: mm-hmm.
3: in, in internally and in not just within me, but also between me and you. Right. So we get do we do get caught in this loop? where in which we would say this is, uh, you know, some of the research on guilt and shame would suggest that when we feel the thing, when we sense and experience neurophysiologically and and relationally, when we sense the thing that we call guilt, uh, one of the the first things that the the research indicates that people will tend to do when they're in that space, uh, if they sense guilt in the context of relationship with someone that they generally trust, the first thing they tend to do is to turn toward that person in order to resolve the problem, make the relationship right, repent, ask for forgiveness, make make up, do whatever they have to do, they will tend to turn toward the person that they've offended. The notion of shame, on the other hand, which takes place and emerges at a much earlier stage developmentally than does guilt. Wow. Uh, 15 to 18 months of age, kids can start to experience this and Whereas with guilt, uh, the thing that we call guilt doesn't really begin to emerge in kids, in mo- for most kids, until they're somewhere between the ages of about four to six years of age, um, b- because it requires more of the brain development to be in play to offer to that child this, the experience of what we call guilt. Mm-hmm. The difference is that when we feel shame, we only ever turn away from people; we don't go to people naturally. When we feel ashamed because the very act of considering it only strengthens that loop, Mm. which, again, all the more reason why the gospel makes such a huge difference, because like we are people who God has to come and find. We are not going to go find God. We're only going to go find God on our terms and we will leave our shame at the door as part of that but that's I, I, you know that's why when i when i read you know the, the gospel is such a powerful thing for me because it is the one story as opposed to all of the ancient stories about god this is the story in which god is coming for us yep we're not having to go the other direction
0: mm-hmm. It's like he knew we had this shame problem, and, <laughs> mm. and pursued us. Which I'm hearing echoes of Tim Keller and what you're saying because that's that's some of what he says. This is the only story where where God came down and came to mm-hmm. us.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which right.
2: that whole right. that whole notion of like we we are never going to want to share. We are, we're our natural reaction is always going to be to hide to isolate, um, and and I, I mean. This is kind of maybe a theological question, but is that why the Bible places such importance on confession?
3: Well, again, I think uh, I, I think the Bible, I, 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 the short answer I would suggest is yes, and also why the Bible so beautifully doesn't explain all this. Hmm. it just it just shows us. And even when we get to the prescriptive texts of the epistles in the New Testament, therefore, confess your sins to one hmm. another. Um, it is when we say confess your sins, it is a direct reflection of Genesis chapter three. Mm -hmm. God was trying to pursue the first couple in an engaged confessional moment, not in my view, not for the purpose of having them grovel, not for the purpose of having them come and admit, yes, we're horrible people because we've done this horrible thing, but because he really is genuinely looking for a relationship with us, even even when it is our tendency to run away from him, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he just never stops coming for us.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, and if shame is this self reinforcing thing, being kind of trapped in our own mind, if we're operating in that shame loop, is, mm-hmm. is really the, the worst place that we can be. If you can have this kind of this trusted, attuned um, person to, to come, and yeah. it, it would almost help to stop that cycle.
3: Right, and Matt, to your point, like the the biblical notion and the theology behind confession uh, is so crucially important because that whole notion of confession being "I'm going to tell the truth" um, is more than just "I'm going to tell you about my sin." Mm-hmm. It is "I'm going to tell you the entire truth about." My life, everything mm-hmm. about my life, including my experience of shame. And again, we we folks who live, you know, at the tail end of modernity, uh, we talk about, you know, confession is this thing that we do, like we're we're using words to give people information about facts about our sinful, broken selves. Yeah. The whole, the the biggest part of why it is that confession is so powerful is not because I've simply transferred information from the privacy of my own head and life to the you know to you. The most powerful part of, of what happens in confession is I as an embodied person, am going to offer to you the truth about my embodied life, hmm. including words. And as I do so, I am literally going to see what your response is long before you tell me and remind me that my sins are forgiven. Which is why, you know, why the priesthood of all believers is such a big deal. Like, we need priests mm-hmm. to remind us, not because we need priests to be a go-between theologically, but because we need embodied persons who can in our, you know, in right hemisphere to right hemisphere, nonverbal cue to nonverbal cue, say, Kurt, even in all this that you've done, I just can't tell you how glad I am that you're in the room.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and that's what confession does. It puts mm-hmm. me in a space where in my embodied self, I see you and your embodied self still wanting me to be here, mm-hmm. despite all about me that you now know, that you didn't know five minutes ago. Yeah. And that I was sure once you knew, you would want to leave. Mm.
0: So how does... How does that work, though? In So here you are confessing, which really in the whole embody, the whole sense of this is how I feel about being my whole person, including the whole the shame piece and sharing with someone. How does listening and, and sharing that, how does that help to remove shame?
3: Well, I think, um, you know, the, the whole notion of uh, removal uh, kind of conjures uh, this sense that Uh, There will come a point, you know, like six months from now where shame will no longer be a thing for me, (laughs) you know, and I'm, you know, and 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 we all know, like, that's just not the way it works. I mean, I I, you know, there there are things about the way God has set up this whole thing that are confusing to me, right, because if I were at the helm, if I'd made the world. Uh, and if I'm gonna send my son, I would have felt like, you know, once the whole crucifixion resurrection thing happens, that we should be able to get people to where they really are perfect. Hmm. Yeah, and I you know I'll just speak for myself like that's just not happening. <laughs> and 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 what's so maddening at times for me is that you know you do, you you, you feel like you grow and you make progress in certain areas of your life only to find someday where something that you thought you had taken care of years ago comes back around to really create problems for you. I mean, we know this is true with addiction in general. We know this is especially true with sexual addiction, that our brains, you know, we what we wish we could do would be to like somehow – you know, spiritually have some kind of neurosurgical procedure that would just ablate all the neural networks that represent my shame experience and my desire for sin, and then everything would be great. Yeah, why not? Right, and the new heaven and earth would already be realized right here and now in my own lifetime. Mm -hmm. But it does appear, and, you know, the one thing I suspect is that I think, A, I probably don't take myself and that I have been made by God nearly as seriously as he does, hmm. which means that the brokenness that exists in me as having been received from my parents and grandparents and great grandparents all the way back to the first couple, I don't think I really get just how bad the problem is. Huh. And this gets back to some of our opening comments. Right, about like, exactly. ev- eventually we do recognize that our sin is far worse than we know because we are really working and wanting to live into the joy of the good news, only to discover over and over and over again that even though I'm working on this shame thing, I can't seem to completely get rid of it. Hmm. Hmm. And so, what we find is that we, as as I tell patients, um, our you know growth. In general, and particularly when we talk about spiritual growth, when we talk about working out our salvation, when we talk about putting on Christ, all those metaphors that St. Paul uses that are so beautiful and rich, in some respects, one of the ways that I, I tell patients that th- one of the things that this represents is it is a sense what I'm doing is I'm learning to grow in my love of doing the work. Hmm. That's really what I'm doing. I can't use perfection as a benchmark. I can't use the benchmark of "I'm more patient now than I was before." Be- and that may be true, but if that's my benchmark, like tomorrow, when I'm not patient, I'm going to wonder whatever happened to the growth. Right. right. And this is where, and, and this is where Eva will continue to use shame, even as we are trying to assess how effectively we're working with shame. <laughs> Right. And so it's tricky. Yeah. But I but I will say this. I will say that um, it is entirely possible and and we are intended to grow in our capacity such that shame has less and less and less rule Mm -hmm. over us, less of a voice within us such that we are paying more and more attention to the voice of God that says to us what he said to Jesus at his baptism, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love more than you can imagine.
4: Mm.
3: And the, the healing from shame, which I think is a lifelong process, is as much about practicing turning our attention moment by moment by moment to hearing and remembering God's voice saying to us, You're my daughter, whom I love, and in whom I'm well pleased. That's the beginning and end of the story. What I want you to do is to respond to that right now. Even even in this very moment, Mm -hmm. when something has happened about which you feel the most shame. In that moment, what is it like for us to feel the hand of a 33-year-old Palestinian (laughs) on our shoulder, who turns and says, I can't wait to see what we're going to do within the next five minutes. Yeah. And we could afford to have more of that in every domain of social interaction in our mm-hmm. culture.
0: Ah, oh, this has been so good. I just want to I guess just ask just one last question. Kurt, you when you started sharing even your story in kind of that silly goofball island way, but of just with, you know, it's kind of almost as if you're conceived with shame bathing Mm. you Mm -hmm. um and here you are 56 and your word for the year as potentially theme whatever adventure like how how have you seen in as short as you want to say or as long but just like how have you seen that show up in your life like of just some of that joy and growth and that joy Mm. in in removing the shame
3: yeah um the abridged version would be to say that um I have three older brothers, uh, all of whom now have died from cancer, Mm. Um, the most recent death taking place uh, this past June, Mm -hmm. uh, where my oldest brother died. And um, uh, now I'm in this strange place of being the only surviving member of my family of origin. But um, my brother's death uh, activated a a bit of a cascade of conversations Mm um, that eventually all involved some things about my family of origin, about my parents and Mm -hmm. other, you know, other, other elements of my developmental years, some of which I haven't really thought much about. But one of the things that came out of some conversations that we had about my own growing up years, uh, you know, reflected to me by one of my surviving sisters in law, who in the course of conversation went back and said, you know, because she and my, uh, one of my brothers had been married when I was quite young and They were around and seeing kind of how my parents were parenting me. Now, all this is to say is that, like, I I had parents who loved Jesus and who loved me more than I deserved. And uh, many, many, many things about my life growing up were rich and full and good. Um, But there were, you know, but it wasn't perfect. And one of the ways it wasn't perfect is that I, you know, I had to, turns out I was, I I, I lived a lot of life making sure that I wasn't making my dad angry. Mm. And wasn't Mm. making my mom anxious. Mm. Not because they were angry and anxious all the time. But there were elements, you know, kind of coupled with my temperament in which I was doing a lot of practicing of that, just making sure that if my dad might get angry, I'm just going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because, you know, where I grew up, we didn't talk about emotion. We didn't. There was not much inquiry about this. This is one of the reasons why when I was in the middle of my existential crises as a teenager, uh, you know, I wasn't having conversations in my own home about this because it was there was too much risk of upsetting the apple cart about, you know, how we were supposed to believe and think and so forth as Christians. Right. So what ended up happening was, you know, I, uh, my, my sister-in-law made a comment in, in the course of conversations after my brother's death, converse, you know, comment about how she noticed that some of the things that my parents did in raising me, that she and my brother didn't really, she they they were concerned. Not concerned like something dangerous was happening, but there were ways in which they thought that, you know, things were a little harsh for me. Mm which was really interesting. And because what I ended up, you know, in the course of this, you learned, oh my goodness, I've spent a lot of years managing other people's anger and anxiety as a way to manage my own stuff. Because at the end of the day, you know, shame is waiting for me. Like There's something, mm-hmm. you know, something's gonna be wrong with you mm-hmm. if you aren't managing this. And then You know, I've been married for 32 years. And then as I turn it, like, it's no, there's no other place where it's more evident than in my marriage, where for 32 years, it turns out I've been working really hard to manage my wife's anger and anxiety. And by that, I don't mean that she, I mean, she's not angry or anxious in ways, but like, this is the narrative that I'm spinning and I've been spinning since I was, you know, since before I was six. Yeah. And so. I use the word adventure because like I've spent the last four months having to practice pushing against shame, even in my marriage where I'm like, I'm worried that I'm going to be ashamed because I would have done something that's going to make my wife angry or anxious. This is a story that I tell. And of course, she's not thinking anything of the kind, mm-hmm. but I'm making this up in my head. And I'm thinking like, my gosh, like I'm a, I'm a shrink. I've known like, and, and like, yeah. I'm, and here I am 56, like learning all this stuff. Yeah. And so not only that, but it also applies to how I do my work. I've got you know a couple of different things that I'm considering doing, you know in the near future. Mm. Uh, so this whole practice, yeah, of putting shame to death uh, has shown up in the course of discovering things that are true about my life and have been true that I've known to some degree but not have have not had to viscerally kind of, Take it in and yeah. do something with it, right. until you know these events happen in my life. And uh, you know, fortunately for me, I, I would say again, thanks be to God for the number of different ways in which He's come to find me in the middle of all this stuff. Hmm. Um, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I am fortunate enough to uh, be, uh, to, to have friends with whom I'm in you know, I, uh, two guys that I meet with every Tuesday for prayer and confession. And I've got a spiritual director and I've got other people by whom I'm really deeply known and who've loved me very, very well, hmm. um, that, uh, have encouraged me to continue to like take steps forward and practice telling my wife things that are here before. Like right. I haven't told her because I'm afraid that I like at the, at the end of the day, things are not going to be good. Hmm. And, um, so I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that. But that all that about adventure, I mean, coming into the new year, um, it, it's a, a great deal of adventure as I'm thinking about this new work I'm having I'm, I'm doing around this topic.
0: So encouraging. And it it just felt like the question needed to be asked because we kind of opened up some pages of your story and then you just beautifully taught and really pastored us, I feel like, as well as, you know, we talk from the neurobiological standpoint as well, but just really pastored us so well. And then I just wanted to, to bring it back down to just hear, okay, so where's that at? And Again, just because the the dream for this podcast is to open up real stories and real lives with the right now gospel. Just thanks for for modeling that so beautifully. Uh, You're welcome. Okay, guys, this is Lori again in the present day. What'd you think of the episode? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at com. And if you want to dive more into this conversation or other conversations we've even had with Kurt Thompson, we had a second part to this specific episode, and then we did another one this last season, uh, you can hit up the show notes for links. And, man, another connection to lament. How does that connect to shame? And we're actually going to have an episode later in this season that's going to talk about how... We got to grieve.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, that one's coming up next week. What? In the next week's take two with Mark Rogop.
0: I actually was (laughs) genuinely surprised (laughs) by (laughs) that.
2: Yeah. He's going to be talking about lament. And so we're really excited to hear some more about that conversation.
0: Okay. Well, we have lined this up for you all. We pray that this season is a blessing for you as we look back. And we're going to look forward next week. So, okay. For all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we'll see you next week.